fell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the, the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top, top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and it gives to whom he will and sets, it, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, 
Let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord, the king that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon by which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation 
to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Lee. I'm the pastoral apprentice here at Entwistle Community Church. And uh, I have the privilege of preaching for you all today. So, uh, to start, we're going to be taking a look, as Len just went through, Daniel 4. And as we uh, take a look at this book, I want us to start contemplating pride. Because pride is one of the key troubles in this book. When we talk about Nebuchadnezzar in this book, he's struggling with pride consistently. And I want us just to think of our own lives, just think to yourself in your heads of examples of pride, right? Times in your life that you've been prideful in a way in which you have to ask yourselves the question, am I giving myself or God the glory? Am I trusting in my own sovereignty, in my own control, or am I giving it to God? Am I trusting that God is in control. For instance, in my own life, I've realized, shoot, I have quite a bit of trouble with pride. I am a Bible college student right now, as many of you guys know. That's what part of me being an apprentice here is. And in that, I have had ups and downs with school. I've had good marks and rougher marks, and I had a period of time recently where I had a lot of good marks, and then some stuff in life came up and those marks dipped a little bit. And my first question was not, uh-oh, am I serving God less well than I could be? The first question was, am I letting other people down? How will other people see me? Will they see me as being out of control? Will they see me in a negative light? Will this damage my pride? And it would. And eventually, it came to a point where I had to confess the fact that I had this problem with pride. I didn't even know that's what it was originally. It was actually a very good mentor of mine who told me that, who showed me that. I was so worried about other people's perceptions of me that I forgot my God was in control. And the reality is, this is not just me who struggles with falling to or the temptation of pride. 
Almost all of us here do to some degree. If we look at our own lives, in our social spheres, in our friends, in our family, and we ponder, am I being prideful here? It's not usually too hard to see. Man, when I got married, the amount of pride I noticed I had, I was like, whoa, I am a selfish person. <laughs> I'm bad with time delegation. That goes on. When I had kids, again, I'm like, oh, I have to get up so much earlier than I ever have before. <laughs> and when Jackie was like, hey, Lee, can you, you get up with me? Jackie's my wife. And I'm like, yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll be there soon. And then an hour later, she comes into the room. She's like, Lee, you're, you're still asleep. I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> but in that, I was like, oh, I'm tired. I made excuses for myself, right? I was like, I'm tired. I'm sorry, Jackie, I'm tired. And there, I was tired, but she's a mom of two. You think she might be tired as well? Pride is something that's in all of our lives. So what do we do about it? How do we respond about it? How do we respond to it? And Daniel 4, and actually in Daniel 5, we get to see incredible examples of what pride does to a person and how to respond to it. Both if we're showing a person how to respond to a prideful situation, them being prideful, and if then we are uh, dealing with pride ourselves and how to sort that out. And Daniel 5 shows what happens when a person doesn't come to a point where it ends well. Daniel 4 shows us what happens when, a point, when it comes to a point where it does end well. In fact, the start of Daniel 4 is a, a letter. That's what Len said, right? It's a letter from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you wouldn't think of him as a biblical author. Yet... Nebuchadnezzar writes a letter and it is filled with joy. And it's a little bit out of character for him. We've been looking at Nebuchadnezzar and the last few chapters so far for some time now. And repeatedly, Nebuchadnezzar has a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of prideful issues. He was so pagan, in fact, that he made his own statue, his own God. We don't know if it was him, uh, of him, or a God that represented Babylon, his kingdom, but he had so much pride that he put this thing up and said, everybody worship it. That is the pinnacle of a prideful person. Look at all I have done that I will literally make you worship an object that represents my, what I perceive as my greatness. It's incredible. And that's, we come back to how chapter four starts. Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. It starts by telling us how this ends. This chapter one, two, and three are building up to this crescendo in chapter four, and right away, we get to be told what happens. Verse four, one to three, read, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure 
to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. What we're about to read is no ordinary story. This part of this narrative that we've been building to, it's an address, it's a decree, it's a letter from Nebuchadnezzar to the world. A message in which he excitedly and earnestly informs all people of every nation of what God has done in his life. What we are about to go through is the testimony of one of the most powerful kings in history and how God humbled him and brought him to a place where he could recognize God's sovereignty, where he could drop his own pride and worship God. But keep in mind, keep in mind that this is Nebuchadnezzar like I said, remember all the stuff that's happened before this. He set up his own pagan god. He's at previous points showing a lot of volatility toward God and those who follow him. He's not in a good place with his relationship with God. And so how, what happens in his life that brings him to this point of genuine worship? Before he had said in chapter 3, he had some respect for someone else's God. It wasn't his own. But the tone has changed. This confession is heartfelt. It's a genuine and personal conviction of God's mighty power, of his eternal kingdom, of God's sovereignty. So what happened? Verse 4 reads, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contended and prosperous. To catch you up to speed on the character of Nebuchadnezzar, he's a Babylonian king. And he's incredibly wealthy and a powerful ruler. His kingdom covered most of the known world at that time. Nebuchadnezzar was in a palace known for its fortification, its exceptional grandeur and wealth. He had security in all the different areas of his life. In all the different areas he could have pride in, he did. Babylon even contained two of what were known as the wonders of the world at that time. Beautiful, massive, hanging gardens like nothing anyone else had ever seen. And walls so fortified and huge that I believe it's an eight-horse chariot could fully turn around on. There was a Greek historian, Herodotus, that claimed Babylon surpasses in wonder any city in the known world. And he specifically praised the walls, which he said were 56 miles long, 24 meters thick, and 320 feet high. That would be huge in today's standards, and that was way, way back 
that they made this happen. That was not at all a norm for them now. It's not a norm for us now. And people would see that and say, whoa, isn't Babylon great? Isn't the king of Babylon great? And King Nebuchadnezzar knew it, and he reveled in it. He sat in it. He thought that that gave him security. But in this security, sitting in his palace in the heart of it, he has a dream that horrifies him. And what's his response? He gets all of his wisest men, right? All the smartest people together to interpret this dream for him. And they either cannot or choose not to interpret this dream for Nebuchadnezzar, right? They, do, they don't know what, uh, they may not know what it is, or they know and it is, they realize it's really bad news for the king. And Nebuchadnezzar, as we've seen in previous chapters, if he wakes up angry as he did in this previous dream situation in Daniel 2, when he woke up, he had a fiery temper. He was ready to kill in a moment thousands of people's deaths without a thought because he was angry. This guy has a, 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 a very shallow temper. But whatever the situation was, whether they didn't know or they did not want to tell him, Daniel enters the scene and he has the insight and courage through God to tell Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. So let's pause. Let's take a moment to reflect on Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's relationship so far. How, uh, so far. Right, during the time of the book of Daniel, uh, Dan, uh, during the time of this book, Daniel and many other Jewish people were in exile. They were taken in war. Daniel had almost been killed by Nebuchadnezzar's decree. His friends were thrown into a fiery furnace. There were others in the king court, the enchanters, interpreters, and wise people that didn't like them, right? They had, been, had refusal to, to be uh, brought into this community. There was rage on Nebuchadnezzar's side. There was multiple misunderstandings of God on Nebuchadnezzar's side. There's, this was not a, a happy friendship. This was a rocky relationship. Nebuchadnezzar was also not a perfect king in a ruling sense. Babylon had incredible grandeur, but it was very harsh to the oppressed, which it says later in the chapter. This relationship between the Jewish people and Nebuchadnezzar was not easy, especially for Daniel and his friends. So why am I bringing this up? Daniel hears the, hears the dream and interprets it. And he, it is not a good outcome for Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of the known world. And, my, and Daniel stops. It says he's perplexed for a time. He just stands there after hearing the dream. You can just imagine him being like, uh-oh. 
I'm about to tell the grandest king in the world that he's going to go and eat grass like a beast. He's going to be reduced to the status of an animal. And remember, he's in the middle of a king's court. Everyone's there. All the wisest people are there. All the people who want the best for Nebuchadnezzar. And he's about to tell Nebuchadnezzar that Nebuchadnezzar specifically needs to recognize that the God, that his God, Daniel's God, our God, is the most sovereign, is the only sovereign God. This is not a super easy or calm situation for Daniel, but in courage and in God's uh, step in his life, he interprets the dream for him. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So remember, keep an eye out for Daniel's mentality during this. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit providing food, all giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reached the sky. And your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave its uh, stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, with its roots remaining in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him live like wild animals until seven times or years pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump in the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. 
it may be that then your prosperity will continue right away. Daniel was greatly perplexed. Right? Right away, he says, he realizes what this is, and he says, oh my Lord, if this dream only happened to your enemies and adversaries, right? He cares about Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. He even gives him advice, like many of the prophets would, in which they relay a message that there may be a way out. Verse 27 reads, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins and do what's right. Your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. Daniel does not want this to have to take place for Nebuchadnezzar. No matter how brutal this interpretation may seem, it is done out of love. And you may be asking, how in the world could this interpretation be taking place and be showing love? We're going to revisit that a little bit later. But keep in mind that, uh, yeah, keep in mind the context. So, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Well, doesn't go so well originally. In verse 29 and 30, King Nebuchadnezzar is walking around on the roof, reveling in all he has, and says, look what I have built, right? His royal resident. Look at my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Nebuchadnezzar is given a year. It says 12 months later, and his mindset does not change. He did not heed the warning. He stayed prideful. And it wasn't just pride in what he had done, it was pride in how he saw himself. And what happens? God steps in at this moment when Nebuchadnezzar's pride is at its fullest and then exercises his judgment. Nebuchadnezzar looks over his castle, his city, his domain, and he's saying to himself, look at all my glory. He's reveling in his, what he perceives as his works, his dominion, his intelligence to be able to make it all happen, all his glory. He was trying to make his grandeur outshine God's. Yet in verse 31, 33, it says this. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and that he gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, 
what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. This is not an easy image. The humbling reality of the truth of this situation, as God has already shown previously to Nebuchadnezzar in previous chapters, is that God's power and grandeur will always outdo that of this world's. Nebuchadnezzar's will always buckle in front of the one true Lord God Almighty. Nebuchadnezzar, who seemed to act like the king above kings, was reduced to the status of a beast. He ruled nothing. He had nothing. He had no effect on the world and was not even of sound mind for seven years. Just imagine how rough of shape he would be in after this long. Right? Many of you take care of animals, cattle, even pets. Imagine what happens when those are unkept for seven years. It gets bad. And this was a human, a man. Imagine seeing that. You're outside. You wouldn't even recognize him, right? In those days, there wasn't really media. You, when you imagine this man, you would imagine him in flowing robes, surrounded by jewels and important people. You would imagine him in his grandeur. You wouldn't even recognize him. A man who looks similar a beast. This terminology is talking of reducing to a beast. The idea of a beast is used in other parts of the Bible. In Genesis 1, in fact, right away in our creation story, there is something that separates us from being a beast, from being an animal of the sea, of the sky, of the land, as it says in Genesis 1. Part of it is that God breathed life into us, but he also breathed the world into existence. But one of the things it says is that he gave us authority, authority to rule over the birds of the sea and the fish or the, the birds of the sea, yikes. The birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the beasts of the land. The authority comes from God making them, as it says, like one of us, so that they can rule over these things. Authority, right away in Genesis, is told to us that it is a gift. It comes from a sovereign God. When we do not act in God's authority, we reduce ourselves to acting like wild beasts. When we rebel against God, we put ourselves into a place that is lesser than what he intended for us. And think about it. Think about this world for a moment. 
Think about the tragedies that have taken place. And you know what we say when someone is, uh, commits a tragedy to another person? We say it's inhumane. It's because a person was not acting as a human should to another person. They were acting like a beast. This happens all the time. So what in our lives do we believe is in our authority? All authority is a gift from God. The world, your possessions, your wisdom, your intelligence, your ability to love, it's all a gift from God, from a sovereign God who is in control. When you receive a gift on Christmas or your birthday, you don't think when, when a parent gives it to you as a child, right? You don't think, I made this gift through my power and my greatness. Maybe some kids do, I'm not sure. But that's, you know that's wrong, right? It doesn't make sense to give yourself glory for a gift given to you. So, Nebuchadnezzar, pride, exceeded that which you could even imagine. He had a whole chunk of the world to himself, and he attributed all of it to himself. And God says, are you sure? Let me remind you that I am in control, and all that he had was taken away. So what happens? We remember the start of this chapter. It started with Nebuchadnezzar in praise. So how do we go from this, acting like a beast, to praise? Well, after seven years, when Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledges God, that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. When Nebuchadnezzar finally looks up to God, restoration takes place. He desperately humbles his pride before God and God lifts him up. Look at all the other times Nebuchadnezzar has questioned God and challenged God. He said, well, who can do something like I can? Who can face me? Who can interpret this mystery? Each time God has stepped in. And finally it all comes to a point where he recognizes God for who he is. And this is an incredible shift in mentality, in spirit. Like I said, look back to the opening verses, right? What do they say? They're praise. This is how Nebuchadnezzar now views and wants to show God to others. He doesn't make a wild claim like he did before that all those who don't listen to God will be pulled apart or anything strange or crazy like that. This time, it's different. There is finally a true, repetitive, heartfelt, and genuine response to God's sovereignty. He sees the difference between God and him, between his kingdom and God's kingdom. He realizes that, in fact, his kingdom is God's. 
People can't oppose it. People can't oppose God's kingdom. People all need to look up to him. Everything will answer to him. No one can stop God or compare themselves to God. He recognizes that God is sovereign. So what are the results? The acceptance of God enabled Nebuchadnezzar. It didn't reduce him, it enabled him. It says in verse 36, he became greater than before. And is that not true in our lives? When we lay ourselves down and humble ourselves before God, do we not gain something that is priceless? We do. We get to enjoy a just God. What that means is that God who loves us, who is sovereign over us, when we come to him in humility, he meets us there. And he gives us a relationship with him that is like nothing else humanity or this world can offer. He even calls God just. He was just humbled for seven years. He was made like an animal. And he calls God just. And again, that's because God gives him a life-giving conclusion that God is sovereign. That God has power over all things. That God can welcome him into eternity. And God extends this welcome to all of us. We can meet God, humbling ourselves before him, realizing our wrongs, and going to him. And he'll meet us there and lift us up into a relationship with him that is beyond our understanding eternally fulfilling, and includes an eternal reward in heaven. Ultimately, God has won a bigger battle than that of the, uh, of the one between him and Babylon. It was the one against death. God beat death through Jesus' death on the cross. The war is won. Talk about sovereignty. And he wanted also that you could be in relationship with him. And I want to close with this quote. It says, Pride is basically a failure to see ourselves in proper perspective before God. Pride often manifests itself in self-applause, attributing one's success to one's own efforts and failing to properly give God the credit. When we do this, we rob God of the glory he deserves. We are reminded in the Old and New Testament that God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Who wants to have God oppose him? The alternative is far better the grace of God upon us. We have a choice to make. We choose grace or we choose God in opposition to us. See, it's a scary thing to be humbled 
but it's a horrifying thing to never be. It's a scary thing to have to encounter when God asks you, when God makes you take it down a peg. But imagine if he didn't, and you were eternally separate from him. That is not the fate he wants for you. It's not the fate he wants for us. He welcomes us into relationship. So I wonder, if we look at our own lives, and we can have a similar testimony to Nebuchadnezzar's, in which our testimony can be the recognition of God's sovereignty, a God who is in control, even when we are not. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you that all the powers of this world, everything is subject to you, Lord. God, it is so easy to look around and see the things that we are not in control of, to see the things we have pride in, to see the things that we're scared that other people may see about us. Lord, but you are sovereign. You are in control, Lord God. You, in that ultimate sovereignty, love us so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins, beating death so that we could be in relationship with you. In a relationship where we don't have to worry about being in control. Because you, Lord, are. God, I pray in the different circumstances of our life where we may have pride, where we may be out of control, that we remember that you are. Lord, I pray if we need humbling, humble us. And if we feel like things are out of control, let us remember that you are in control. Please, Lord, let us humble ourselves before you accepting you as the most high God above anything else. Amen.